Welcome to TED's Podagogy. My guest for this episode is Vanita Sundaram, Professor in Education at the University of York. The topic today is gendered behaviour specifically related to sexual harassment, coercion and violence and around lad culture and what schools can do to help. Vanita, hello. Hello. Do you want to start by outlining the research you've done in schools around these topics? Yeah, so the research that I've done in schools has mainly been with secondary aged pupils, Mm -hmm. um, aged sort of 14 to 16. Um, And that's really been uh, focused mainly on their understandings of what violence is, so what constitutes violence, and building on a vast body of feminist research that exists on the fact that young people accept and tolerate violence. So really trying to understand how young people see violence and why it is that they come to accept it um, as they do. Um, And so that research has really shown that young people's understandings of violence aren't lacking in any way. So school initiatives that would seek to try and point out to young people what violence is kind of would be mis-aimed because young people do know what violence is. They can recognise a a range of forms of of violent behaviour. What's interesting though is the fact that they initially start off by saying that violence is unacceptable. So if you ask them what they think about violence, they'll always start off by saying it's wrong, you shouldn't do it, it's naughty, and, and phrases like that. But as you begin to talk about different scenarios in which coercive control or harassment or pressure or um, abuse might happen, they begin to justify why violence might take place. And they do that with reference to gender expectations and stereotypes. So if I was to break that down, I, I could give a couple of scenarios where a young man might be putting sexual pressure on his uh, girlfriend you know, to yeah, at a party or in a social situation, um, and then the girlfriend says no, and he kind of continues to pressure her and pushes her and calls her a, you know, a gendered insult, like slut or something like that. Um, and what we find is that young people uh, rely on gender expectations or stereotypes about how they think boys should behave and how they think girls should behave or what girls should put up with mm-hmm. to justify and explain and sometimes excuse violence. So they'll say things like, oh, it's understandable because she rejected him sexually and boys don't like that kind of thing. Or, you know, there's a kind of an expectation that girls will go along and be sexually acquiescent um, and so therefore the violence might be deserved. Similarly, in scenarios where we talk about infidelity, or not even kind of, uh, it could be presumed infidelity, they'll start to talk about uh, why young men might use violence and how that's understandable because they've got these Yeah, well they've got these very essentialist ideas of what boys and girls are like or what men and women are like and Mm. they're kind of very, you know, biologically based. You know, they talk about the nature of men and um, how men can't help themselves but be violent Um, and, and kind of and then they talk a lot about the roles of girls in relationships so the fact that girls should be passive they should be submissive they should listen to their boyfriends they should do what they ask them to do including in relation to sex um and so they even though they think violence is wrong they end up excusing it do they understand that in those situations violence is not uh, just a physical act it's uh, emotional violence or, or they understand that what they're, they're the violence they condemned is the same as pressuring a girl into having sex or the like they understand it insofar as they name it as a form of violence when you ask them mm. you know, what, what they think constitutes violence. But the violent nature of it almost gets um, diminished or minimised when they're talking about these scenarios. Um, so they're not kind of necessarily saying this person, person X is using violence and that's okay because X, Y and Z. But we're talking about examples of violence and then they're, they're saying that, that they're, that's okay, that's understandable or you know, it's rationalisable or justifiable. Does that come from the boys and the girls? 
Yes. So the girls also legitimise the violence. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And today, 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 explain where that comes from. I mean, is this another situation where we we blame mass media, or is this cultural? You know, if we asked children a hundred years ago the same questions, would the same answers arrive? I mean, that's a tricky question, um, really, to answer about a hundred years ago. But I think. Um, what we mustn't do is blame young people themselves. What I wouldn't want to do is take an individualised approach to this and say individual children who don't understand that violence is wrong are somehow deficient or lacking or naughty or bad. Really, we can't divorce their views on gender and violence from the wider social and cultural context in which they live, in which they're socialised. So we know from a very young age, um, through research in primary schools, it's been done by people like Emma Reynolds, um, as well as people in, in my own research team, we've got a PhD student, Catherine Atkinson, who's working with five and six-year-olds, can really see how gender norms are learned and enacted in primary schools. Um, you know, at that very young age, boys are using objectifying language about girls to evaluate their appearance. Girls use that same language to talk about themselves and to evaluate their, their peers. So it's happening at a very from a very early age. They're starting to absorb and learn how to be boys and how to be girls in very particular ways. And that is directly linked to their understandings then of when violence is acceptable or not and what mm. behaviours in general are acceptable or not. And those children, are they coming, out, coming in with those ideals or is the way a primary school is structured or the way lessons are delivered or are there messages there that are facilitating those gendered, those gendered roles as such? It's interesting. I don't think necessarily there are kind of curriculum lessons that are facilitating. I think relationships and sex education is, is one curriculum area which could challenge those lessons. It doesn't currently. But I think... So I think there's obviously family context to take into consideration. But I think uh, without, again, wanting to blame teachers, I think very few schools consider themselves to be promoting particular gender norms or particular uh, kind of uh, ideas about sexuality. But schools do promote lessons about boys and girls and heterosexuality in particular all mm. the time. So teachers do that through personal anecdotes about their relationships, their personal lives. They do it about talking about... Um, straight relationships in the media, so for example the upcoming royal wedding, that mm. might be a topical conversation in many schools. So without necessarily explicitly realising it, they are normalising heterosexuality in a, in a way and making homosexuality unspeakable or positioning it as a threat to young children's knowledge about um, sex and gender. I think also teachers use gendered language all the time in schools and that's one thing if we are going to think about teacher education, initial teacher education around these issues, we really need to recognise the ways in which teachers are gendered beings in themselves and in the ways in which they have absorbed beliefs and enact beliefs about gender um, when they're interacting with children young and young people. So language like boys and girls, you know, that kind of arbitrary division of classroom spaces, school spaces into these binary categories of boys and girls and the kind of stereotypes that go with that. Mm. I think those kinds of things absolutely reinforce in young people's and children's and young people's minds this notion that there are two genders and that boys behave in a particular way and girls behave in another. Is it compli a complicating factor that this profession is three quarters female in teaching? I mean, I, I know there was someone doing some research on how men react, male teachers react in a primary school. Mm. And he hasn't finished the research yet, but he was saying that uh, the male figures in the primary school, because they're outnumbered, they tend to either feminise their behaviour mm. or go completely masculine, like mm. overtly masculine. Mm. And so uh, are children being exposed to perhaps quite extreme versions of, of, of gender in those situations? 
I mean, that's it's a really complicated debate, the one about male teachers in schools. So I think there are many good reasons to diversify teaching as a profession. But unfortunately, a lot of the debates that have been um, put forward around why we need more male teachers have drawn on these very essentialist notions of gender. So men can kind of promote a particular type of masculinity in boys, or they can speak better to boys' learning styles. or um, and, and I think those ideas of gender are really unhelpful to moving us forward in the debate. There's been some research with male teachers who talk about schools feeling like very feminized spaces. But again, kind of pinpointing exactly what that is and why it's exclusionary to right. men is, is not so easy to establish. Um, so then, as, as a child moves through the school, you say, you know, at five and six, these, these ideas are starting to emerge. At what point do you think that, um, maybe I, it's too strong to say a sensible entitlement, but where does that, that notion that, that certain types of violence are acceptable, I mean, are we thinking that five and six they're already making that assumption, or is it, is it developing as they move through the, through the age groups? Yeah, I mean, it's such an insidious process, and sexism occurs in so many ways, many of which aren't very overt, so they're difficult to... Uh, they're difficult to recognise and difficult to challenge. Um, I think you, you mentioned the word entitlement, and I think this sense of entitlement and male entitlement is really interesting because when we use terms like male entitlement, it can come across as though we're accusing all men of being awful and um, you know all the kind of stereotypes that go with feminist research and activism around that. But actually, I think we can think about male entitlement in terms of the advantages that boys get um, sort of drip fed through their lives from very early on the fact that they get um, access to certain types of toys to certain types of resources mm. certain stereotypes which position them as stronger or more dominant or in control or having authority and they gain a cumulative advantage from that mm. throughout their lifetimes when it comes to entry into school many young children already have a sense that what what is um, associated with boys or with masculine is superior to what is associated with girls or what is feminine. So, um, you know, they'll talk about not wanting to play with girly things and even girls who don't necessarily identify as girly girls, in inverted commas, will denigrate what is feminine um, and talk, you know, negatively about that mm. in favour of the masculine. So I think when we're talking about male entitlement, it's really important to remember that the, this happens in really insidious ways that boys and men might not be aware of themselves, but it's cumulative and it leads to uh, men occupying a particular position in society, yes, later on, but also boys themselves uh, having a particular sense of self and confidence and entitlement in schools that girls won't have and don't have. Do you have like a dual um, process going on there then when if, if a male student feels that they can't sort of adhere to or meet those expectations, that, you know, there's numerous examples, I guess, in the media of, of men acting violently a, a, around rejection and violently around um, their own sort of self-awareness around sexuality. Is that partly a, 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 con a construct itself? I mean, is that their failure to, to meet those expectations or is there something else going on there? I think that's a really important point and actually that reminds me to always kind of be aware of intersectionality so the fact that you know we can't treat all men as a homogenous group there are uh, many men who are victims of other men's violence and privilege and entitlement so um, you know black and minority ethnic men mm -hmm. um, gay uh, non-binary trans men 
um, working class men have a different type of privilege to, to middle class men, for example. So there's all kinds of different intersections that we need to be aware of. And I think it's really important as well to think about the fact that um, men also lose in this game of gender stereotyping and gender norms. Yes, it may, they may advantage men socially and financially and um, in, in, in many other ways, but they also stand to lose because the pressure to perform masculinity in very particular ways is incredibly limiting and incredibly constraining. Mm. We know now we're having more conversations about men's mental health um, and kind of um, high rates of suicide among men and so on. I was going to say anorexia as well. I know that there's data suggesting more boys are becoming anorexic because yeah. ideals of manhood as well as ideals of, of femininehood. Exactly. So, I mean, I really would be at pains to point out that the kind of social construction of gender, that social division between men and women that's upheld in so many different ways in society is damaging to both men and women. Mm. Um, Do you find in your research that, I mean, when I was growing up, and I'm 34, so I was growing up in the you know, my teenage years were the late 90s when there was a real lad culture, you know, the magazines, the sort of the bands that were around, it was very lad culture orientated. There doesn't seem to be such strong lad role models around now but mm. is that culture still there if it's not as overt if you like mm. it's an interesting one because when the new debate around or the renewed debate around lad culture started again in sort of 2012 to 2013 people were sort of asking is this new mm. and and i don't think it is new i think in the 1950s and 1960s 1970s we had lad culture mm. uh, we just might have called it something different there's a classic sociological study um, by Paul Willis called Learning to Labour where he talks about working class lads and their disaffection and disengagement from mm. school so we've had this notion of lads and lad culture for a long time I think increasingly we're starting to recognise that the terms maybe not that helpful because it covers such a range of practices mm. and range of identities, I think. For some people, lads are a very positive identity. And when we're talking about lad culture, we're not talking about positive practices. No, we're not, yeah. So I think naming the practices we're talking about more specifically is always helpful. And if we're talking about sexual harassment and sexual violence, then yes, they're absolutely still uh, issues for us to be concerned about today, as they were in the 90s, as they were in the 70s. I think there are additional ways that it might manifest. So for example, you know, social media and, and online spaces, uh, which were around in the 90s or the 70s. But I think the underlying patterns of behaviour are still uh, remain and, you know, they persist and still need to be challenged. Is there a sort of a subconscious acceptance? I mean, how many schools have you been in or I've been in where, you know, oh, he's a bit of a lad, you know, he's hard to, it's hard for him to concentrate, but, you know, he's a, he's a good boy, really. You know, that sort of language around there's an expectation of behaviour that perhaps there isn't around. You know, if, if a girl acted in the same way, it, it's, it's attached to a completely different set, mm. of, set of terms, if you like. Mm. Is that, you know, how easy is it to get over that? I mean, how ingrained are, are those um, sort of terms now and that, that way of thinking? Yeah, I mean, that really gets to the heart of, of it all. So those kinds of um, attitudes that you've just been discussing are you know intimately connected with gender stereotyping and gender norms, gender mm. expectations, and there is very much in schools a culture of uh, boys or an expectation of boys will be boys among some teachers, um, which negatively impacts on boys again. I think it you know um, really negatively impacts on in, on engagement and um, enjoyment of school. Um, but I think thinking about um, you know where they come from and how deeply ingrained they are, that is the fundamental nature of gender norms and gender expectations. You know it's a kind of a cumulative process of building up this idea that boys 
are a particular way. They're more boisterous, they're more disruptive, they're cheeky, they don't sit still, they need X, Y, and Z modes of learning, whereas girls are much better motivated, they're more conscientious, they're quiet. But thinking about nursery and early year settings, we can all, early year settings, we can already see that uh, staff working in those settings um, come to those settings with their own beliefs about gender. So they will say, boys don't like to write, they don't like to sit still, they like to be outside and they like to be learning kinesthetically, whereas girls like to sit still. So are we exposing children to a particular set of opportunities and a particular set of skills at a very early age mm. and then later on talking about them as their natural qualities? Um, I mean, I would say yes, that is what we're yeah. doing. Um, but because, because it's so insidious and so cumulative, We've, we've arrived at a point where it's very tempting to talk about these things as natural attributes of boys and girls um, because we can see patterns of similarity um, across societies as well. And so if we go back to the girls sort of accepting the, the or excusing the, I've forgotten the term you, sorry, but I think it was like excusing violence. Or, or they normalise it, Normalise the violence. Yeah. I mean, where does that come from? I mean, you can see on the male side where they're, where they'd want to adopt certain traits to, to fit in and be manly. Is it, is it the same on the, on the female side where there's a set of prerequisites and, and it's about fitting in or is it about a loss of hope that anything can change mm. or why do they accept that role? I mean, I think there might be a, 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 a sort of a resignation about it, but certainly it's um, absolutely linked to the social construction of femininity just as the practices we see among young men are linked to social constructions and expectations mm. of masculinity. Um, we know that young girls are schooled um, in various forms through families, through school itself, through the media, to be passive, to be submissive, to be sexually acquiescent. And a lot of research has suggested that what the decision making and choices that young girls and boys make about relationships and about love and about sex aren't just individuals' healthy choices or individuals' unhealthy choices. They're intimately bound up with how they think they should perform their gender. Mm. So for a lot of young women negotiating consent, enacting boundaries, saying yes as well as saying no can be very difficult because we're taught, we're socialized from a very young age not to be assertive, not to speak too loudly, not to set boundaries um, in the same ways as, as boys might um, be taught to do actively. So it, you know, it can put girls in a, in a very um, challenging position um, in terms of negotiating those boundaries. That's not to say that girls cannot do it and there are plenty of um, kind of feminist clubs emerging in schools mm. that are student-led that are kind of providing a source of community and solidarity and support for young women in the face of all these gendered and sexualized pressures. Um, but in t answer to your question about why girls kind of um, accept and normalize these practices I think it links back to the normalization of these gender expectations, you know, naturalize the fact that this is how boys um, boys act, and then we naturalize the way that this is girl how girls should respond. What a dangerous sort of um, sort of damaging result of of at, at at the core, you know, at the start, sorry, very maybe innocent sort of gender stereotype. Oh, it's okay, you know, it's this sort of they don't believe they're doing any wrong by those gender stereotypes, but then you get to an age of sort of sexual awareness, I guess, and suddenly it's 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 accepting behaviour. Mm. So you mentioned the feminist clubs in in schools, and you know recently with the grid girls going in F one and the um, some of the promotional models at mainly motorsport events, you, you, there's this clash emerged where 
the girls on some of the girls on those on the grid, if you like, are saying, "Well, I am a feminist. You know, I've chosen to be here. I'm in control of myself." And then there's another group saying, "But no, you're still acting within the construct of of, of the society that sort of you know makes you a second class citizen and leered at." How is that debate going to sort of develop in schools? Because if you do have these young women who are you know who are asserting themselves and they come across other women like that. I mean, is that should should schools facilitate debate there? Should should they try and guide or should this be this left alone you know, should the girls be left alone to find their own way through that? Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting question. I mean I think in relation to kind of these different views on these different positionalities on, on grid girls and, and other issues like that. I mean, I think we're living in increasingly neoliberal times where um, a lot of inequalities are explained away by individual choices and individual decision making. And there's a lack of focus on structural and systemic inequality that's embedded at various levels of society. Uh, And I think it's the job of schools to um, to teach young people about structural and systemic inequality. We still live in a deeply racist society, we still live in a deeply sexist society, we still live in a deeply homophobic society. And to reduce that down to the level of the individual and individual's choices um, and uh, kind of negotiations of society, I think is very dangerous and very damaging to those individuals who are on the receiving end of discrimination or disadvantaged because of those inequalities. So I think it is the job of schools to really raise young people's awareness around that whilst maintaining of course this is a balance whilst maintaining a, a sense of how do we empower young people to negotiate these challenge these inequalities um, and negotiate um, you know their lived experiences within that context so it's sort of absolutely not reducing it to the level of the individual uh, and, and recognizing the macro level but also not disempowering people and kind of remembering that people have agency as well. Mm. Um, and, and, and I think these feminist clubs are a really brilliant way of illustrating, demonstrating the agency that young people have. So if, if, if schools have got feminist groups growing up, do we need to have men involved in those feminist groups? Should, these, should this be a curriculum discussion even where feminism is much more explicitly uh, talked about as a, as you say, in a directed way about social constructs rather than some girls going deciding to become active in feminist issues and perhaps you know starting to have those debates that we, that we just talked about maybe there does need to be a little bit more guidance mm. I mean yes absolutely I think it's wonderful to see um, these really kind of strong and empowered girls taking action like that and it's wonderful that these clubs are student-led rather than imposed by mm. teachers I absolutely think there's scope uh, and a necessity for young men to be involved as well um, and to be allies in that discussion and also to be able to understand how gender and the performance of gender can be damaging um, and limiting um, for them as well. I mean, one thing that the discussions around the new uh, relationships and sex education curriculum um, have involved is thinking about how we can enable young people to recognize gender stereotyping and recognize its damaging effects for themselves and for others and that might be used as a way in which we can start to talk about kind of social uh, inequalities at that more structural level i think it's i think schools should teach about structural inequalities of a range of kinds so i mean i think we should be talking about racism and the way that links to sexism and the way that that links to homophobia rather than talking about these things in isolation that's interesting um, because they are all 
systems of power, systems of oppression, mm. you know, um, that uphold particular hierarchies, and those hierarchies intersect with each other. They're not, they're not, they don't exist and operate in isolation from each other. And do teachers need a, a lot more uh, training for that? Because obviously they're topics that do make people nervous, and you only need like a couple of students to start questioning or get the wrong. You know, one misstep in how you might you might talk about something will see you accused of being, you know, uh, sexist or racist. And you know, teachers I speak to to say, look, we don't really know a way in here. We don't really know how to do this safely in mm. inverted commas. Mm. Um, do you think that's an initial teacher training problem? Do you think that means a, maybe it, perhaps it's a specialist teacher? I do think it's the teach initial teacher training uh, limitation of the way we have initial teacher training at the minute that that they're not taught explicitly or very fully about um, gender and sexuality, but about race equality, cultural diversity, um, LGBT, LGBT rights, you know, I mean, I th there's a lot of things that teacher education doesn't currently encompass, and I understand the pressures of teacher educators to fit it all in. So, um, you know, it's not a criticism, but I think we could, we, I'm saying it's not criticism, but we could do better and we should do better. And I think what often gets left out of this discussion, so we talk a lot about learning as having an emotional base, but teaching is an affective um, uh, venture as well. You know, teaching has an emotional base. And there's some really interesting research that's been done by um, Dennis Francis, who's a professor in South Africa, who's talked about the discomfort teachers feel mm. um, around teaching about sexuality, for example. And discomfort is an, an emotion. And uh, again, so I think it's really important to remind ourselves that teachers experience a range of emotions teaching and talking about these different topics. It's not done in some sort of a, a vacuum. And I think fundamentally teacher education needs to enable teachers to recognize their own discomforts around gender, sexuality, sex, race, um, you know, culture, language, religion, and so on. Um, because we all bring our own values into the classroom, mm. um, and, and, and teachers certainly do. In relation to whether it should be a specialist teacher, um, I think it should be a well-trained teacher. I don't know whether that should be a specialist. I kind of I think I'm probably of the view that all teachers should be able to respond to racism, sexism, and homophobia, and all teachers should be aware of their own racism, sexism, and homophobia uh, in order to challenge that uh, when they see it in their, in their school context. Um, but it, that might be an unrealistic aim, so it might be that the resources have to be invested in specialist staff in schools. Um, but I certainly think senior management should be well trained, you know, so they should have always have the specialism um, in relation to being able to deal with these issues. I was going to talk about challenging behaviours, so I, I guess the example you gave at the start of the party where the student is forcing a girl strongly um, persuading a girl to have sex even if it doesn't happen in the end. Um, in a school context, obviously that's, that scenario is unlikely, but you will get iterations of, or similarities to that situation. How should schools challenge that? How well, spot it, then challenge it, I guess? I mean, what sort of things are we looking for and then what should the reaction sort of be to those? Mm. Well, you brought up a really important point about spotting it. So yeah. in order to recognise it, we need to educate um, teachers and young people about 
what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think this goes back to this really entrenched normalization of practices that we see as being natural for mm. boys and natural for girls and, and the interactions that we see as being normal everyday interactions and really starting to recognize those as problematic. Um, so the spotting it is a, it was one thing. And then there's been an increasing amount of work, at least in higher education, about um, so-called bystander interventions mm -hmm. and how we can power um, people in any given community to call out um, you know, negative practices or problematic behaviours when they see them. And I'm, I'm developing some work at the minute on how we might use that kind of a model or approach in secondary schools. So thinking of schools as closed communities um, in which we might start to create a culture where certain practices are seen as unacceptable and everybody feels empowered to right, so call them out and challenge challenging. them. Yeah. It's, it's students challenging TAs, canteen staff. Yeah. It's a whole school so approach. So a whole school approach, exactly. It would have to be. Um, I think there are limitations to that approach as well. And, and some research that I'm just starting at the minute with uh, Alison Phipps and Tiffany Page is about intersectionality in, in that kind of bystander approach. So recognizing that we're not all equally positioned to intervene. So some people are more vulnerable to violence than others. And mm -hmm. is it actually fair or responsible to ask those people then to intervene when they see um, that going on um, in their communities? and. Uh, people are perceived differently so um, a young black boy calling out or intervening in a violent situation is going to be perceived very differently to um, a young white girl for example mm. or, or a young white man so I think we need to really spend more time understanding how intersectionality works in those kinds of prevention models or intervention models um, so uh, the project that I'm doing is really focused on higher education but I think we can use some of the lessons learned um, in school contexts as well. So I think there's real potential. Uh, I really love the idea of a whole school approach where you're changing the school culture and you're, you're um, kind of agreeing on an ethos which, agree, I mean, agreeing on an ethos that agrees, but you know, agreeing on an ethos which says these practices are unacceptable, these practices are not tolerated within our community and empowering people to, to challenge them and call them out. I really think that's an attractive idea, um, but I think there are we still don't know enough about how it would work. Mm. It has to go behind, beyond just a policy on the wall, basically. Yeah, and, and we have to think about real issues like children's safety. You know, Is it always going to be safe and practicable to intervene um, in, a, in a violent situation? And then in a, if you're a school leader, and from a teacher perspective, about trying to get some of those sort of systemic um, definitions of gender out of the classroom, and they're going to come up against people saying, but they are different. You know, you know, there's a biological argument and there's a societal argument and then there's something in between, like a, a cultural argument. Should they be getting into those debates with teachers? Is that a healthy thing to then say, OK, show me your research and let's have a look? Or should it be a lot more, that's overcomplicating the issue. This is the, you know, a bit like we've done today. This is the end point of where these gen gender stereotypes get us. I mean, how in-depth should those discussions be? Yeah, I mean, I think there's the ideal scenario and then the practical scenario. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm um, very much in favour of teachers engaging with research evidence to inform their practice. Mm. And I think um, it's really exciting that there's a kind of a, a movement around that now and increasing kind of, um, you know, a louder conversation about wanting teachers to engage with research. All of what we've talked about today is obviously based on research as well. So I think if we've got research informed or research-based curricula, evidence-based curricula and evidence-based policies around these things, then teachers are, even if it's indirectly engaging with research, mm. 
I think if we want teachers to more actively um, engage with some of these quite complex issues, there needs to be time made for that kind of CPD for teachers yeah. to engage with with um, with studies um, in in this area because it's it otherwise we end up having very reductive conversations. I think, but. I think it's important that policies and curricula are informed by research or evidence-based. And the final question then is, is people often talk about, you know, it takes several generations for cultural shifts to happen. And, but it seems like we've, we've been having discussions like this for, for decades, you mm. know, since the 60s, 70s, perhaps even before that. Are you hopeful that we are still moving on? Are we stalling on these issues? Are we even going backwards on these issues? I think we are moving on. I think the optimist in me is going to say we are <laughs> moving on, you know, so we are, it may never happen, but we are talking about compulsory RSE and within that we're talking about gender, we're talking about LGBT students, we're talking about harassment, we're talking about consent and even five or six years ago that seemed an impossible kind of conversation to have in, mm. in public fora. Um, so I think we have moved on. There's obviously a wider societal conversation happening now around sexual harassment, sexual violence, which is opening up space for uh, women and men to talk about their own experiences and, and for us to then start to think about what are the root causes of these practices. You know, So it's opening up the space to have conversations that we haven't had uh, to the same extent before. So I think we are moving on. It does take a long time for culture change to happen. And actually, I think some really big shifts have to happen before we see true culture change. So generations of power holders and decision makers mm. need to be shifted off their perches and their pedestals um, before uh, before we can see that change. You know, uh, we need to see greater representation of women and ethnic minorities and sexual minorities in decision making uh, roles, um, in kind of senior management in schools, Westminster, yeah. you know, places where people hold power and make decisions and can influence change um, and that's going to take a while before we see that kind of change in representation filter through as well. So you're hopeful but cautious? Yes, always hopeful but cautious. <laughs> yeah. Well thank you very much for today, thank it's been you. really interesting.